Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Morning Central Service. Hope you're doing well. Um, the, I can report the South Service are looking in good shape this morning. Not as beautiful as you guys, clearly, but nonetheless, they're in good shape this morning. Hope you're looking forward to your day. Uh, I am. I have obviously. I have the privilege of preaching at each of the Christchurch London services during the day, and in the last one uh, at Bethnal Green at six o'clock this evening, I, along with others, get to lay hands on Joel and D Wade as we recognise them as leaders of the East Service. And there is a beautiful picture of a beautiful couple, possibly the trendiest service leaders at Christchurch London. Um, just to remind you, we have uh, that Andy Tilsley has actually been leading this service and the East service since we went to four services about 18 months ago. We said at the time that this was an interim measure, uh, that uh, we didn't think it was a great idea having one person leading two services, but it was the best idea that we could come up with at the time, but it was always with a goal of raising up others who would be able to do that. So we're really excited that Joel and Dee uh, will be uh, leading the charge in the east from from this Sunday and just to remind you too we have Tim and Jackie who lead the south service Andy who's leading the central service here Philippa and I have also uh, now very clear that this is our home base if you like we're here uh, the great majority of the time I want to give our full energies to supporting Andy in that uh, ironically I say Andy's leading this service he is but he is down in Sutton this morning where we have a small group that is a growing group that is hoping to become a service in due course, so he's preaching there. And then in the West End, I'm leading the service, but I've got a fabulous team around me there, and they don't let me do too much. So uh, that's fine by me, and it's fine by them. And we're hoping to announce leaders in the West End shortly too, and then obviously Joel and Dean Nee. So we're excited about the way that's all developing. Uh, developing leadership is one of the signs that God is at work in the church. It's one of the signs of fruitfulness, and therefore we're thrilled that that is happening. And it's a big moment for these service, big moment for Joel and Dee. Do pray for them if you think of them during the rest of today. Uh, it's my job now to finish our Fully Alive series, which has essentially been asking the question, what does it, make, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And I want to start this morning by trying to answer that question by way of three illustrations to get us going of three different people working in very different ways, but all seeking to reflect God's glory into the world uh, with the opportunities that they have. And the first is a young lady by the name of Anne. Anne found herself with a very unusual opportunity. And her opportunity was to work for the well-known American author and cultural commentator, David Brooks. He writes weekly for the New York Times, and uh, certainly on the other side of the pond is very well-known. And he had asked Anne whether she would be his research assistant for a new book that he was going to write. She had said yes to that, expecting that she would get to do footnotes, indexes, and maybe the odd bit of reading, but found that her influence and her opportunity in this project was much greater. You never know when you say yes to an opportunity quite how it's going to turn out. That was certainly the case for her. David Brooks started by thinking he was going to write a book on decision-making. But instead of it being about decision-making, it ended up being about character. There'll be a, 
uh, a picture of that. Uh, next up, it's a New York Times bestseller uh, and a great book uh, written, um, I think, from a faith perspective, but entirely digestible for people, uh, whatever their position when it comes to faith. Here's what David Brooks uh, said about Anne's influence on this book. He said it became a book, under, in, under Anne's influence, it became a book about morality and the inner life. She led dozens of discussions about the material, assigned me reading from her own bank of knowledge. Interesting, I thought it was meant to be the other way around. He gave her reading, but she was giving him reading. Challenged the superficiality of my thinking in memo after memo and transformed the project. I have, he said, stolen many of her ideas and admired the gracious and morally rigorous way in which she lives her life. Quite some compliment, I think. I wonder whether my boss or your boss would say they admire the gracious and morally rigorous way in which you live your life. If there are any important points in this book, David Brooks continues very modestly, I suspect, they probably come from Anne. Wow. Young woman, just having graduated from university, who suddenly gets to play a huge part, not just in getting some print on a piece of paper, but on print on paper that then becomes a New York bestseller and consequently gets read very broadly and has an opportunity, therefore, to work for the cultural renewal of that nation and even beyond. Anne is a woman, and a woman of faith, who has learnt what it means to be an image bearer in her situation. Now, I imagine at least cries of response from all of you carefully listening people who are all saying, yes, but I am not the researcher to a famous author. How about me? Well, it all depends what you do. Example number two is Alan Everett. Alan Everett is an individual that you may have read about recently, even if you don't remember his name, because he's the parish priest of St. Clement Nottingdale which is the church whose parish incorporates Grenville Towers. He was woken at 3 a.m. on the night of the inferno by someone who lived in the towers. He got up and he said, I came, and he got up and he just did something very simple, but it turned out to be very important. Here's how he describes it. He said, I came down to the church, I opened the doors and I turned the lights on. And those very simple acts, he went down to the church, opened the doors and turned the lights on, resulted in the church being at the center of the relief operation that developed. He said from shortly after the doors were open, people started coming through the doors to find sanctuary in the church. He said by 7 o'clock in the morning, we had a fully stocked breakfast bar and, and volunteers were organizing themselves into teams in order to serve it. He said by lunchtime... The church building looked more like a warehouse than a place of worship because there were so many goods there which were available for those who had found themselves caught up in the crisis. I want to suggest Father, uh, Father Allen also understands something of what it means to be made in the image of God. He has an opportunity to work for the social renewal of his community and interestingly was available at the moment of crisis in order to do so. But I hear some of you, most of you, maybe all of you say, but I'm not a vicar of a parish church. How about me? Well, third example is a friend of a number of ours here. She's not here this morning, but was been a member of Christ Church since the very early days, Heather Rushton. Heather is actually with her 
husband Ian co-leading what we're doing down in South London in Sutton at the moment. Heather, as a teenager, uh, both came to faith herself and found that she loved sharing her faith with others. Her closest friend at the time was a young woman by the name of Joy, and she shared her faith with Joy, and Joy came to faith. Joy's sister was Pat, and Pat also came to faith as a result of what had happened in Heather's life. Heather, Joy, and Pat subsequently all moved to London for university. They all joined this church, they all married in this church, and started their families in this church, and are all now down in Sutton, where those three women are at the core of the Alpha courses that we've been doing in Sutton, which have been nothing short of fabulous. In fact, Heather uh, said to me recently, just before the start of their summer course, which has approximately a third of the number of people on the course, as they have when they gather on a Sunday, which they do once a month. I just, you know, do the maths. Work out what that would look like for us here at the Central Service. Heather said she was thinking about whether she should invite a friend. I thought, "Mm, probably not. And it struck her then that she was deciding for her friend and that maybe she should give her friend the opportunity to actually decide for herself. So Heather sent her a message on Facebook. Her friend, to Heather's surprise, said she would be absolutely delighted to join the Alpha course and has been uh, attending the Alpha course ever since. Three individuals with very different backgrounds in very different places doing what we would call here at Christchurch, working for the cultural and the social Alan and the spiritual Heather renewal of our city. And we use that shorthand, cultural, social and spiritual, as a way of saying everything. I challenge you to find anything that we can't fit into one of those categories. We're meant to work for it all. I could spend the rest of this sermon defining what it means to be made in the image of God. Four whole books and theses have been written on it, but we'll just take one aspect of it for now. I hear sighs of relief around the room. One aspect of it, which is that at the time of writing or uh, at the time of the writing of the first early chapters of Genesis, which is where we're first described, you and I, human beings, as made in the image of God, it was understood that emperors would build small statues in the far-flung parts of their empires where they couldn't get. The empire may be based in Rome, but you would stumble somewhere in Asia across a statue of the emperor. And the statue was known as an image made in the image of the emperor. When you stumbled across the statue, you were reminded that this was the domain of the emperor and that you were to live out his will. You were to work on his behalf. In the same way, when the writer says that you and I are made in the image of God, we too are made to look like him and then to work for him, reflecting his glory. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that we should carry a luminosity, that we should, to use Paul, the Apostle Paul's language, we should shine like stars in the dark night sky. And this is really what this talk is all about. And given it's our last talk, I want to get as practical as possible. I want to simply suggest it's a very simple talk. I want to suggest three characteristics of our life as image makers. Image bearers, those who shine like night stars in the darkness. And I want to take it from one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, 
It's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And Paul is writing and he says these, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And as many of us are aware, Paul's writing this, chapter 13 is sandwiched between two chapters where he's talking about worship. And the Corinthians are an excitable bunch. They love their worship and they love their experience of the Spirit and their attitude is there is no time that I'm more spiritual, more serving God than when I have my hands in the air and when I'm singing. And Paul just acknowledges that, but then he puts this chapter in. It's a bit of a sort of punch. He says, actually, what really matters is your heart and the shape of your heart. And if you want to do a heart health check today, ask yourself, how am I doing on faith? How am I doing on hope? Is love oozing out of my life? Do I have more faith, more hope, more love than when I first started following Christ? Or has it got smaller? How's faith, hope, and love doing in each of our lives this morning? And I want to look at each of these in relation to image bearing. And I plan to land a few minutes early so we've got an opportunity then to pray. Because what we'll find is that for any of these to really be demonstrated in our life requires first our life, our heart, to be fully satiated with the faith, hope, and love of God. And so we'll do the words, and then we'll give an opportunity for us as we want to open our hearts and to pray. And then we'll obviously, we'll sing and we'll finish. So that's where we're going. Faith. You and I will never be the image bearers we should be. You and I will never be the people that we're meant to be unless we are living with faith. Because there is an irreducible spiritual element to each of our lives. It's the way we were wired. It's the way we've been created. It's how we've been made to be. And I want to suggest that possibly the greatest expression of faith is prayer. We live in a city where time is the greatest measurement. People often say, I'd rather give money away than time. Time is what I haven't got. And therefore, to stop what I'm doing and to pray expresses my faith. My faith that my prayer might be valuable. That I might get more done through my prayer than working harder for another period of time. My work expresses my self-reliance. My prayer expresses my reliance on the Creator. So I want to encourage us all here to pray. Well, we could do a series on prayer. There's so much to say about it. So just one thing for today. Do you pray for yourself? Give me my daily bread, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Do you pray for yourself? Well, surely there's so many other things. I'm a Christian. I want to put others first. Why would I pray for myself? I want to suggest that if you don't pray for yourself, If you do not ask for your daily bread, you will go hungry and be unable to feed others in the way that you need to. Somebody actually in this service sent me an email the other day. They said, I was praying for you. I'm incredibly grateful anytime anyone prays for me. Maybe I should have applied the sermon that way today. They said, I've been praying for you and I have this sense that life feels a bit like praying about, feels a bit like swimming against a strong current at the moment. Well, I could identify with that in several areas of my life. It felt just that way. 
And the message went on, good news. God says it's in order to make you strong. Well, that wasn't the good news I was hoping for at that moment in time. I was hoping the current was about to turn around and I could go with the flow. And I thought about, well, how do you become strong when you're swimming against the current? Well, firstly, just by the very act of keeping going builds muscle. By staying in the water, refusing to change course, but continuing on makes us strong. If you can identify with me and my friend's message that life is just challenging, then to build strength firstly is to continue living the way that you should, whatever, however hard it is. But I, as I reflected, I realized there was something else as well. Prayer builds strength. Here's how Paul put it when he was writing to the Ephesians. He said, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he's got lots to give us, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Who would like power in their inner being this morning? Well, three or four of us and the rest of us are all English, clearly. <laughs> we can all do with power in our inner being. Well, how do you get it? You get it from him who has glorious riches. In other words, there's no doubt that he's got enough to give you. And you get it through the spirit. You get it as you are praying. So I want to encourage you to develop a habit of prayer. Develop a habit of prayer. We'll come back to that in a minute. You see, you need a habit because God often, typically, doesn't answer our prayers on the first request. He does occasionally, and preachers love those stories because they preach great. But the reality is that most of the time, if you want to develop strength through prayer, you need to ask and ask and ask again. You have to persevere. It is actually something I have been doing a lot of these last couple of months. I have been praying for strength, and slowly and almost imperceptibly, I have sensed it growing in my heart, and that is often the way. Other times, we hear the whisper of the Spirit, and in the best of times, those whispers seem to inject strength as we hear them. Philip and I have recently been on holiday to the States. We've had the privilege of going to a number of the sites around the civil rights movement, and Martin Luther King's birthplace and where he preached and so on and so forth. Here's one of the stories that we came across that I found particularly moving. And uh, I should say before reading this that he and his wife typically prayed with the phone off the hook because of the number of threatening calls that they would get during the night. One night clearly they'd forgotten to do this and he writes this, he said, my wife had already fallen asleep and I was about to doze off when the telephone rang and an angry voice said, listen, before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. I hung up, he said, but I could not sleep. It seemed to me that all my fears had come down on me at once. I'd reached saturation point. I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way of moving out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. In the state of exhaustion, with my courage almost gone, I determined to take my problem to God. When you're feeling weak, when you're feeling like a coward, take your problem to God. He goes on, my head in hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. As I read this, I can hear his voice. I'm busy trying not to do an imitation because it won't work out well. 
I am here, he said, taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I can't face it alone. At that moment, he says, I experienced the presence of the divine as I've never before experienced him. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, he said, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God gave me inner calm. Three nights later, our home was bombed. Sometimes we need to hear the whisper of the Spirit. Thank God he heard the whisper of the Spirit. Thank God for millions of men and women's lives since that he didn't back down right then. I wonder whether he really understood the consequences of what he was playing with. I suspect not. We don't in the middle of a battle. I want to call you to pray. I want to call you to find a way of creating a habit of prayer. It will be different for different ones of us, depending on where we're at, our lifestyle right now, our season of life. Firstly, make it realistic. Don't decide to pray for an hour and then find that after 10 minutes, it's about you've prayed every prayer you can possibly think of. Do you know what I would recommend if that's the case? Aim for eight minutes. Finish thinking, wow, I managed it. I could have even prayed a bit longer. But make it realistic. Find a way that works for you. Prayer has a lot to do with our personality. Some people like to write out their prayers. Some people like to walk with their prayers. Some people pray well in the morning. Other people pray well in the evening. It really doesn't matter as long as you... Exactly. As long as you pray. How does it work for you? How does it work for you? Some people want to read the Bible in a year. Some people are going to read it in 10 years. It really doesn't matter. Some of us can pray every day. Some of us can pray three days a week. Some of us mark out a particular time on a Saturday and take some of our annual leave as a spiritual retreat. You are a spiritual being and you will never flourish unless you connect with your maker on a regular basis and learn to grow in your relationship with him. The luminosity that C.S. Lewis talks about with which we're to walk in this world comes through a relationship. And don't worry if you think, I'm sure I'm not luminous. When Moses came down from the mountain from his time with the Father, the people said, your face is shining, put a cloak over it. Moses was not even aware that he was radiating the Father's glory. And so we're to pray. We're to pray. We're to learn. We've never prayed. You talk with the Father and you share what's on your heart. And you do it just as long as you do it for, and then you stop. And you learn to wait and to listen. There's so much more I could say about it, but you get the point. We're to live with faith. Faith is expressed through prayer. To be an image maker in this world is to be a prayer. Secondly, we're to be hope-filled messengers. 
hope-filled messengers. I don't know whether you've noticed. I'm sure you have noticed. There's a certain amount of anxiety around at the moment, isn't there? I read an article in one of the papers the other day. It was headed this, everyone is frustrated, urban rage is hanging in the air. And it went on to list all the things you'd expect it to list. You know, a certain current political instability. A housing crisis in which the young can't get on the housing ladder. A crisis in elderly care, so many old people are not getting the care that they need. A crisis in the care of vulnerable children where many children growing up in high-risk environments. And it went on and it went on. And then it finished with, but there's one thing that will cheer us all up. And I remember getting to that and thinking, what? And it was... <laughs> Apparently the author thought that it was great news that there's a new ABBA show on the South Bank. And they finished by saying, and we all love a bit of dancing to Dancing Queen. Now maybe you do. Maybe you don't, but it's hardly substantial, is it? <laughs> Given the import of all the other issues, and essentially what it said was, there's lots of anxiety and no real answers at this point in time. So what do we do with that? Well, we have to find a figure, and this is one of the ways we can use the scriptures. We have to find a figure who will teach us how to live. And in times of hopelessness, I go to Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys have had everything go wrong. They're enemies. The empire of Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem, the city they love. It's hauled them off in, in long lines with fish hooks in their mouths. It's taken the cream of the Jewish society and said, you will serve us right at the heart of Babylon as civil servants. Everything that they hold dear has been lost. They also find themselves in an environment which is antagonistic towards their faith. It's a different situation to our situation, but it is one that you could argue was hopeless. So how does Daniel live? Three things I just want to remind us of. The first is he never lost the long view. And the long view is darkness comes and history is full of dark times, but it is not always dark. The darkness will pass. In chapter 2 of Daniel, he's hauled before the king who's had a dream. The king has asked his advisors. He said, tell me the dream and then interpret it. Of course, none of them can. So he says, well, we'll execute the lot of you. <laughs> then he calls Daniel in. I mean, we're not talking small stakes here. He says, tell me my dream and then interpret it. And Daniel says, I cannot do that. But he was a prayer who'd learned to hear the voice of the Lord. So he said, but my king will. And he tells, he tells the emperor. And he says, you've had a dream of a statue with four different parts, all of different metals. They represent different empires. Empires come and they go. And you've had in that dream, you see this little stone that starts coming towards the statue. And the stone grows and it grows and it grows and it knocks the statue down. And the stone fills your vision and fills the earth. And Daniel says, O king, that stone is the kingdom of our God, of my God. Pretty risky stuff. You're doomed. In the end, all your glory, all your finery, Babylon, with all its great buildings, all its literature, all its arts, all its influence, will shrivel into nothing. The kingdom of God 
will grow and grow and grow. Daniel never felt, never lost the big picture. He always booted for the long term. And it kept him full of hope. And when you've got hope, you live differently. You really do. And so Daniel, because of his hope, also lived with grace. So when he was told, you need to eat this food to get the promotion, he said, no, I won't get the food, but I'm still trusting for the promotion. When Daniel's told, you've got to stop praying, he said, no. And so he ends up being fed for the lion's supper. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I love their attitude. They're outside the fiery furnace. Do you know, do you remember what they say? Preach a whole sermon on this one. They say, our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, I will trust in him. Amazing. It's what you hope you'd say. Amazing. They see the big picture. They have grace for the moment as a result. And then they find that that grace in the moment transforms the whole situation. So Daniel gets literally fed to the lions that night. It's all over. I don't know how close you've been to a lion. They're huge, powerful animals. That's it. Surely he's there. They've not been fed. He's a goner. And the next morning, and many of us, we know the story, Darius, who's had a sleepless night, draws Daniel out. And as he draws Daniel out, he says, I'm changing the edict. People will no longer worship the emperor. They will worship your God. I will command the whole empire to become worshippers of your God. One moment, it's all over. He's about to be chewed up by the lions. The next minute, the whole empire has changed. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes, as the writer of the Hebrews said, sometimes by faith we change an empire. Other times by faith we go to glory via the lion's dinner. It does work both ways. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they saw the big picture. They had grace for the moment and that grace transformed the situation. Let me give you one other example of how grace transformed the situation in the scriptures. Because I want to encourage you in your difficulties in hopeless situations, to draw on grace and be beacons of light. The shortest book in the New Testament is the book of Philemon. It's one chapter long. And it's the story of Philemon, the, uh, the, a, a Christian and also slave owner, as was common at that time. And the letter that Paul writes him for one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, has found his way to Paul and it seems has probably come to faith with Paul. And Paul now loves this man. Now, what do you do with slavery, which at the time, you know, shaped the ancient near world? Well, Paul says the gospel transforms it. And so he writes to Philemon and he says, I'm sending, Onesimus is coming back to you. That's the name of the slave, Onesimus. Onesimus is coming back to you, but Philemon, you're not to treat him as a slave, for he is a brother. You're to treat him as if I myself was coming through the door. So in a situation of great darkness, Paul now says to Philemon, no, you're to live entirely differently and draw grace for that. 
And Paul also is showing grace, for he says, if he owes you anything at all, I'll cover it. Paul's in prison, but he says, I'll cover his debts. So you just see grace everywhere. Now, here's what's interesting. Within several decades of that letter being written, we find the story of the bishop of Ephesus, whose name is Onesimus. Same one as the former slave of Philemon. And experts say he is almost certainly the same person. So what's Paul done? In the middle of this great darkness and difficulty, he calls for living entirely differently as the gospel demands. And he says, Philemon, he's not a slave anymore. He's your brother. Treat him entirely differently. I'll cover his debts. Grace, grace, grace. Within 20 years, we have a bishop who was a slave and you start to see cracks coming in the whole infrastructure of evil as a result. Sometimes we're called to stand up loud and protest. Other times we're called to live with grace in the difficulty and be beacons of hope. We're to live with faith. Then we're to live with hope. And thirdly, we're to live full of love. Everyone expects that of the Christian. Mother Teresa, Jean Vanier, those are the heroes for people outside the faith. So we're to live with faith too. But my big question is, how do we do that with genuine hearts full of love? Because if it's not genuine, people smell a rat. And if it's not genuine, you will get caught out. Another things we learned, Luther King, he would inspire many, many people to protest. And one of the ways in which they did so is they would go and sit on the stools at, at, stools at lunch bars where segregation would not allow them to go. And they would sit there peacefully and then others would attack them. Dreadful, dreadful scenes. Here's what Luther King said. He said, unless you go with peace in your heart, you will end up reacting furiously. In other words, he said, when you're under pressure, if there's anger there, it comes out. There's just no other way. If you go in proclaiming love, but there's not love in your heart, it will show sooner or later. What happens when you squeeze something? If you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? The juice, the innards of the lemon. When you get squeezed, what comes out? How do you live with a heart full of love? What are the scriptures? How do the scriptures help us with that big question? They simply say is this, understand how much you're loved. When we understand how much we're loved by God and we realize that he is not, it's not finite love, but infinite love. It's not like God has got a certain amount of love to give you. It is endless. And as you realize that, and we realize that in two ways. Firstly, there was a historic event, just to remind you. There was a historic event in which the Son of God both lived and then died and his heart was broken for you and I. How do we know God loves us? We look back to the cross. But it's not just that, but it's also a reminder today through the experience of the Spirit, the love of God poured out in our hearts. And so we need two. You need to, we understand the cross and we understand what he has done for us and then we get full of his love. It's both something that fills the head. It's a historically genuine event. But it's also an immediate experience of the Spirit as well. 
That is, that's, as, as we have those two things, so our hearts become full of love and we have infinite amounts of love or more and more love to share with others. I, was, uh, I came across a Christchurch London example of this recently. This is a young lady who attends the West End service called Natasha. And Natasha has, oh, I, uh, she's been on Twitter a while, she has about 50 followers. And she tweeted this in the middle of the London Bridge terrorist attack. She tweeted this, I, love, I live less than one minute from Baratu, five minutes from London Bridge. Have tea and lots of space for people to come and sit. Message and retweet. And people clearly did. You might not be able to see it because of the drum cage, but there was 1,800 retweets and 2,000 likes. And there were also, I don't remember, 70 or 80 comments, people who wrote back from all around the world who were deeply touched by a very simple, probably spontaneous and heartfelt response to an awful tragedy. One of them, one of them wrote this. Said, completely lovely of you, Natasha. People with hearts like yours should rule the world. Made me wonder whether they understood the biblical story, which says that we will rule and reign with Christ in due course. It's actually absolutely right. But why were people so struck? Why were people so moved? I want to suggest it's because Natasha did something dangerous. It wasn't a safe thing to do. In fact, some people on Twitter said, lovely of you, but be careful who you let through the door. I don't know whether you've ever been caught up in a terrorist attack, but I'll tell you what you want to do. Shut the door, keep the door shut, not open the door till you're absolutely certain that it's safe. Hers was the opposite. I'm here. I am loved. I can love others. And I can serve this world. And I think it's a great definition of love. That love is being prepared to risk myself for others being able to risk something that matters. And I want to suggest that that's a, a great way of understanding the Christian. The Christian is someone who gets full of love because he has loved us and given everything for us, actually so that we might have everything, but that's another story or another part of the, the story. But he's loved us in order that we are filled with love, in order that we can serve our world. Where does your, love, where do, where does your world need serving today? Is it your family? Have you got little ones or big ones that need serving and loving? Elderly parents? People at work? Neighbours? Where does your world need some of the outpouring of God's love today? Charged by prayer, fueled by hope, outworked by love. That's what it means to be an image bearer. It's what we're called to be that we would shine like lights in the dark sky amongst what Paul calls a crooked and broken generation. Can we have the band back, please? And let's stand together. I said at the beginning that we would have an opportunity to pray. So I wonder whether uh, you'd like to Bow your heads. And uh, I just want to give a moment for us to be able to pray. Let's bow our heads together.
Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.